Good morning and welcome to Christ the King Church where everybody is somebody and Jesus Christ is Lord. Please follow along in your bulletins as I read Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. When I was raised in Maine, we had a wood stove. And we used the wood stove to cook on and to heat the house. One problem with the wood stove, though, is that soot can build up in the chimney. And if a fire gets too hot in the stove, it can catch the soot uh, in the chimney on fire. And that can cause a fire either in a wall or in the attic. Now, if a fire was in the stove and out of control, you couldn't throw water on the stove or on the chimney because if you throw it on hot bricks, it breaks the bricks and fire can spread very, very quickly. And the same thing can happen if you throw uh, uh, water on a hot stove. Now, when I was a child, we were taught that if a fire got out of control in the stove or in the chimney, uh, that we were to throw salt on the fire because salt puts out the fire without damaging the hot stove or the bricks. I suppose that works. We ne works. I never had a chance to find out. But if it had caught on fire, we didn't have any bags of salt hanging around anyway. So we had good advice, but we couldn't put it to good use if we needed to. We also uh, used rock salt from time to time to melt ice in the gutters on the house or around doorways and things like that because uh, rock salt melts ice and I did do that a few times, so I know that it works. We also use salt to flavor our food. Most people agree that a little bit of salt adds flavor to food, yet too much salt does not taste good. And I assume too much salt can be bad for you. And we also know that salt is a preservative. I have an older brother. About the only piece of advice that I can remember him giving me was about the use of salt. He said, if you're at somebody's house and you just don't like the food, load it with salt and it will kill the flavor. <laughs> and he felt as though too much salt is better than too much bad food. So we do have different uses for salt. So in light of what we normally think about the uses for salt, putting out fires, melting ice, flavoring, preserving food, how does salt fit in with our text? And how do we know what use of salt fits in with the salt that's mentioned within our text? And how does salt fit in with the last part of our text, being a light in the world? So uh, this Matthew chapter 5 is not a recipe. Uh, there's no fire involved. There's no ice around. And the words are already preserved, so we don't need salt to preserve it. Verse 13 tells us that we, 
believers, this was spoken to believers, are the salt of the earth. Now, do we put out fires? Do we melt ice? Do, do we preserve things? No, we don't do any of those things. Salt here has nothing to do with taste or flavoring or being a preservative, putting out fires or melting ice or improving the taste of food in somebody else's house. It deals with us, every single one of us. It's, if you're a Christian, it, it applies to us and our lives. It applies to us as being salt. Now keep in mind that our passage is contained within the Sermon on the Mount. The setting is a sermon, so when, within the context of Jesus, preaching a sermon to believers, he called believers the salt of the earth. So what does salt refer to when it is spoken of within the context of a religious ceremony or service or, or, uh, or sermon? So practically speaking, how are we the salt of the earth? The only way that we can know for sure is to see what salt refers to biblically. Now the first time salt uh, is referred to in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 3 where it refers to the salt sea. Well there's not much help in understanding Matthew uh, there. But the second time salt is used is in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 26. Lot and his wife were leaving Sodom and Gomorrah and his wife looked back and it says she became a pillar of salt. She died and was covered with salt. Now there's a lot of salt pillars in that area. Now in biblical times, a site was covered with salt to condemn it to desolation. His wife became a permanent monument of disobedience. Anyone who saw a pillar of salt, and as I said, there's a lot in that area, you would think of God's wrath against disobedience. So the next time you use salt, think of it as Jesus would have thought of it. Now they thought of it in two ways. The first, as I have already explained, was the permanence of God's wrath. Secondly, it refers to the permanence of God's covenantal promise, and we'll look at that in a minute or maybe two minutes or maybe three minutes or at least before noon. First, the wrath. Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 23 describes God's wrath on the land if the people break his covenant. Now, uh, uh, we're going to be talking about the covenant here. So if the people break his covenant, his wrath is uh, poured out on the land. It says in Deuteronomy 29, 23, the whole land is brimstone, salt, and burning. If it does not bear, it does not bear, nor does any grass grow there. In Judges chapter 9, in verse 45, it describes Abimelech fighting against a city. He demolished the city 
and sowed it with salt. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 6 describes a patched place in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Now keep this first use of salt and land in your mind. I know you all have minds. You found your way here. But it's a permanent monument reminding us of disobedience. Now the second use of salt was used in worship. Leviticus chapter 2 gives instructions for making a sacrifice during a worship service. And so worship is the central theme in this portion of Leviticus chapter 2. And in verse 13 it says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God to be missing from your grain offerings. With all of your offerings, it says, you shall offer salt. So Jesus' disciples in Matthew chapter 5 were mostly Jewish. He was a Jewish person giving a sermon in that context. So they knew what salt referred to within the context of a worship sermon, of a worship service, or what it referred to uh, within a sermon. It reminds us of God's covenant with us, his people. So when they used salt within a worship service, it was a reminder of God's covenantal promise to his people. It was a very positive use of salt within a worship service. So if he said, you are the salt of the earth, it reminded you of God's covenantal promise to you as a believer. His covenantal promise didn't apply to non-believers. In Numbers chapter, eight, uh, Numbers chapter 18 and verse 19, it says it is a covenant of salt forever uh, before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. A covenant of salt was the covenant, the permanent covenant that God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's a permanent covenant that he made with his people in Exodus and with Abraham and so many others. It was teaching the permanence of that. Second Chronicles chapter 13 and verse 5 says, The Lord God of Israel gave dominion over Israel to David and his sons forever by a covenant of salt. So the covenant to be with David and his descendants forever was called a covenant of salt because it was a permanent covenant between God and his people. The important thing for us here is that a covenant of salt referred to a permanent covenant. God made a permanent covenant with Abraham and his descendants to be their God, and they would be his people, and that is us. We have God's covenantal promise given to us as a permanent covenant. Now, salt made food pleasant to eat, and God would have it no other way. He feasted with his people to celebrate his covenant. It was to be an enjoyable thing 
Taste isn't central, it's just the side benefit. In Matthew, Jesus was referring to believers as being a part of, of the covenant between God and his people by upholding the terms of the everlasting covenant, we become the salt of the earth. The covenant was made with us, and we are called the salt of the earth. We represent God's eternal promise between him and his people. There's nobody else here on earth to represent this. Jesus was here, but he's gone, and he left us to carry this on and to be the salt of the earth. Christians are referred to as living sacrifices to God. We are the covenant keepers. We are the salt of the earth. Those outside of the covenant are like salt that has no flavor. Salt that has no flavor is not salt. The lost are not the salt of the earth. Adam and Eve were the salt of the earth, but they ceased being salty when they fell. Repentance makes one salty. So when a person comes to Jesus Christ in faith, in repentance, they go from not being salt to being salt. And that's a permanent, everlasting, covenantal promise between God and that person that honestly repents for their sins. So you can't go from being salt to non-salt, but you can go from being non-salt to being salty. But there's also a very real warning in verse 13. Some Jews had broken the covenant. They lost their flavor, and they'd been thrown out away from the protection uh, and the promises of the covenant. They were good for nothing other than to be trampled on underfoot by the men of the world. For the believer, though, salt is part of their, for, for, at that time, salt was part of their worship, and it had covenantal implications. Studying the salt is interesting, but it doesn't make any difference to us today how the Jews understood Jesus' sermon. <clears throat> Should we say, well, gee, that's nice. It reminded them of the covenantal promise. How are we the salt of the earth? I want to look at three New Testament passages that answer that question. The first one, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13, is in our text. It just makes a simple statement to believers you are the salt of the earth. That's non-negotiable. You are, period. That's it. Believers, at least. Now, in Matthew, in Mark chapter 9, in verses 47 and verse 48, Jesus had been warning the people against various offenses and of being cast into hell. The next verse, verse 49, he says, everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. The old sacrificial system had done away with, Romans chapter 12 in verse 1 says, uh, we are the living sacrifice, we are the salt of the sacrifice. 
Then the very next verse in Mark chapter 9, verse 50, he says, have salt in yourselves and peace with one another, remembering the permanence of the covenantal relationship between God and his people, surely we can find peace with fellow believers, especially within the church. If there's a personal conflict between two people within the church, something is wrong. He says, have salt with one another and find peace with these people. So if you're having a personal conflict with someone within the church, and you're both professing believers, you are both the salt of the earth, and it's time for you to get together, confess your sins, and Jesus says, find peace with one another. Again, this is a non-negotiable command. Look at the tremendous comfort we get from Matthew, uh, uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 47 through 50. It says, you will be tried, you will be tempted, you will be tested on all sides, but just as surely as our covenant is seasoned with salt, we will make it. When I was working on this, I was thinking of Chuck, your pastor. And let's face it, over the last five years or so, I've only known him for a couple of years, and during these two years, he's been very, very sick with cancer. It's his second bout uh, with cancer. So let's face it, he's been tried. Without a doubt, he's been tempted. Without a doubt, he's been tested on all sides, but he hasn't lost his saltiness. You can see this when you talk with him, when you see him preach, when you, when you associate with him, the salt flavor is in him, it hasn't diminished at all. You, have, you tell him next time you see him that I said you have a very salty pasta. <laughs> He'll probably figure it out quickly, but anyway, tell him that and see if he, tell him I said so, you know, and he'll be nice. Colossians chapter four and verse six says, let your speech always be seasoned with salt. It's referring back to Mark chapter 9. Your speech lives on permanently in the, me uh, in the memory of those that you speak to. It lives on for good or bad. So Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13 describes what salt does and what it doesn't do. Looking at it from a Jewish perspective, the original audience, they would have thought about their being salty with covenantal promises. So Jesus is reminding his people, and when you read this, it should remind you of the same thing, of the permanence of the everlasting covenant between God and his people. Christians are called the salt of the earth because we are under the covenant of God and his promise between him and his people. That automatically makes you the salt of the earth. It's not what you do or don't do that affects your salt or your saltiness. You are the salt of the earth, period. There's no discussion on that whatsoever. Those outside of the covenant are also described in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. It says you're no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If there is no salt flavor, 
then it is not salt. There's no relationship with Jesus Christ. If you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you are the salt of the earth, and the others, it says, are to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Right? There's a heaven and there's a hell. The Bible describes both. Remember, two uses for salt for the Christian community. Every time you use salt, it should remind you of God's covenantal promises and that you are the salt of the earth. And it should also remind you of the wrath of God and the destruction that it brings on people and the land. Greeks and Arabs, I don't know if they still do or not, uh, but uh, when they would get together and make some kind of a covenantal promise with each other, they ate salt as a sign of the seriousness of their covenant. In Ukraine, in some areas of Ukraine, if you go and visit someone that you haven't seen for a long time and they know you're coming, they'll greet you with bread and salt. That's supposed to be good. Try it. It tastes terrible. But if you're in someone else's house, you just have to eat it and swallow it and putting more salt on it doesn't help a bit. But it's a sign that two really good friends have gotten together after being apart for a long time. Salt has a very positive uh, uh, effect in their relationships with each other. So when you're reading in Scripture about the use of salt, you have to look at the context to see if it's a positive context reminding us of God's covenantal promise uh, or something that we might consider to be more negative about the permanence of God's wrath. So if you're not uh, a believer and you're not covered under the covenant, then all these other scriptures apply to you. A lot of warning in here. And it's really graphic in the Old Testament and kind of summarized in one verse in the New Testament here. Yeah. You are the salt of the earth, or you're of no value. You'll be thrown out, and his wrath is permanent. So the teaching continues in verse 14. Assuming that we have the salt flavoring that Jesus spoke of in verse 14. Now, this is assuming that you are salty. In verse 14, Jesus tells us to be the light of the world. We are to be the light of the world, but first we must be Salty. So I want to ask you two questions. What is light in this context? And what do we use lights for in this context? Light is light. Salt, it influences people. First, just as a very practical example, if you come in here to church in the morning and you're smiling and you're treating everybody as a friend, you are acting as a light to the world. This is what you should, if you don't ever do it, you should do it on Sunday morning at least. All children of God are lights. When people see you, especially as a Christian, they really do notice everything you do and everything that you say. If you are a light, you should shine you should be an eternal flame. Remember, this is in the context of eternity, right? If you are a believer, you have the eternal covenantal promise of God. If you are not a believer, you have his eternal uh, promise of wrath. 
eternity is uh, central to this verse. So you should be an eternal flame. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 18, it says, I want you to open people's eyes to the light so they can see God and receive forgiveness. You should be a light in such a way that people can see God and receive uh, forgiveness. There's a purpose in being a light. You should help lead people to Jesus Christ whenever possible and in whatever way possible. Matthew 5.16, let your light so shine before men that they can see your good works and give glory to God. Some people say we're supposed to hide our good deeds and not let anybody know about them. Now think about that for a minute. That's not what verse 16 says, is it? It sounds very humble. Don't let anybody know what you're doing. But Jesus says, let people know what you are doing because that gives glory to God and they may receive forgiveness. So I tell you, if you are a true light, you will shine and people will see your light. You don't have to brag about it. That's not necessary. People and God know what you are doing. If you are being friendly, if you're praying for people, if you're helping other people, if you're sharing your faith, if you're serving around the church, if you're helping seniors or young children, you are acting as a light, and these things can continue forever. We don't call them good works. It's letting your light so shine before people that God gets the glory and some people receive forgiveness, uh, uh, they, they repent and they receive forgiveness. He says, don't hide it. What good does it do to hide it? Are you glorifying God? Are you helping other people? Jesus very plainly says, let your light shine. When you do these things, the Bible says you're being salty and you're letting your light shine in the darkness. Parents and teachers are lights to students as they show and teach us things. Now, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He also said, you are the light of the world. Now, which is it? Is Jesus the light of the world? Or are you the light of the world? He was the light first. He shined so that you could believe in him and then shine yourself. By his shining, you are able to shine and you continue doing his work on earth. You flavor the earth through your light. Being salty in a closet is nice, but it doesn't do much good to anybody else. Since Jesus knew he'd be leaving this earth, he's going to go back to heaven, he said he wanted all of those people who believe in him to be lights. But we've got to answer this honestly to ourselves. Can people see the light of Jesus in you? In your language, your actions, the things that you uh, do and say, Reflect who you are. Now, if only God can see it, you'll probably make it by the skin of your teeth, but you haven't accomplished anything for Jesus here on earth. 
In closing, I just want to say that God's covenantal people are the salt and the light of the earth, not because of ourselves, but because we are subject to God's covenantal promises. You are what you are as you conform to God's covenantal promises and stipulations. So, why does salt taste good? As I said earlier, God would have it no other way. We, as salt and light, are his covenantal people. We are good for the earth, as salt is good for food, and for a covenantal sacrifice used in a worship service. Because of all of this, we can light up the world, and nobody else can do it. So I want us to close in prayer, prayer that we will indeed be the salt and light of the world. And remember, nobody else can do it other than us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you put so much into just a few verses. But Father, we know that the original audience, the Jews, fully understood what Jesus was saying. And it was a challenge to them not to break the covenant, especially since Jesus has now arrived and he instituted a new covenant. So Father, help us out on a, on a daily basis to be, this, uh, to be covenant keepers and to be lights to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.